you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. It was about 8.30 on a Monday morning, February 11th, 1924. Railwaymen employed at the Weirton Junction Rail Yards of the Pennsylvania Railroad in West Virginia were emptying a gondola car full of pulled cinders. The car had originally been shipped from the Scully Yards near McKee's Rocks on the outskirts of Pittsburgh. As they shoveled the cinders out of the car, they were horrified to discover a man's severed head. Then they found arms, and then legs. Although the case was extensively investigated, the identity of the dead man was never determined. This is episode 51, and this is the grisly story of Murder Swamp and the bodies in the boxcars. once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. different sort of true crime episode for me. It's less about murders committed by one killer, as it's about an area in which several bodies were deposited, bodies which are probably the results of any number of different murders. Rumors of the involvement of a well-known American serial killer surface, and in my opinion, at least some of the cases, that might be warranted. Just outside Newcastle, Pennsylvania, and just south of the Newcastle Junction rail yard, used by several different railroad companies, there's a strip of swampy land between the railroad tracks and the Beaver River. A half mile wide, and about three miles north to south, the town of West Pittsburgh is at the southern edge of the marsh. I had thought this area's most prominent nickname, Murder Swamp, was gained after the events described in this episode. But apparently, that's not the case, as during Prohibition, the swamp was used as a dumping ground by local bootleggers, mafia, and black hand. Due to the practice of the nearby railroad of dumping hot ashes and cinders in the swamp, and the mixture of these substances with the swamp itself, it created a burning, caustic mire in areas of the swamp, and accounted for its other name, Hell's Half Acre. It was here that on October 6, 1925, a duck hunter named Samuel Hares noticed a familiar odor. See, coincidentally, in 1913, Hares had discovered a partly decomposed corpse in this very swamp. So on that October day, Hares knew what he was smelling. He followed his nose to the area of a tree which had been uprooted, and fallen over due to the wind. At the base of the fallen tree, there was a hollow caused when the roots had pulled up out of the ground. In this hollow, there was a body. 
somewhat poorly concealed beneath a pile of loose bark, sticks, and leaves. Once he moved enough of the detritus to see a human foot, Hare stopped what he was doing and went to the home of County Constable Walter Bannon nearby West Pittsburgh. Constable Bannon had been one of the local authorities who had worked with the Pinkertons on the murder of L. Seeley Houck, described in the last episode. Once the investigators led by County Detective J.M. Dunlap and Constable Bannon arrived on the scene, they soon discovered the body was that of a nude man, and he was headless. He had been placed in a sitting position, reclining against the back of the hollow, so that the feet faced north. It was rapidly determined that the man had been killed elsewhere and dumped in the swamp. This figured out, some effort was put into tracing from which direction the body was brought into the swamp, but this proved difficult. As the problems with determining this were summed up in the Newcastle Times for October 7th, some idea of the difficulty which the murderer experienced in getting the body to its secluded location may be had when it is stated that it is at least three-fourths of a mile to the nearest place where an automobile could have stopped. Had the body been brought to, the, to this point in a machine, it would have been necessary to have carried it across numerous railroad tracks, thus taking chances of being discovered. The railroads are to the east of where the body was discovered. To the west is the river. If the body had been brought by the Newcastle Beaver Road, it would have been necessary to transport it across the river and then carry it a mile through dense underbrush and swamp. If the body had been brought from the north, it would have, it would have been necessary to carry it about three-fourths of a mile through swamp and underbrush. There would have been increased liability of discovery had it been brought from this direction, as the railroad yards lie to the north. It took several hours for the body to be extricated from where it lay. An ambulance driven by William Newswander parked on the West Pittsburgh Road, on the other side of the railroad tracks, and the body had to be manually ferried out and from there conveyed to Newcastle. The seclusion of the area was elaborated on in that same Newcastle News article. It would appear as though the person secreting the body knew the territory. It would be hard to find a place where a body would be less likely to be discovered. It was only one chance in a thousand that Hares found it. Newswander took the body to the offices of Offit and Company Undertakers in Newcastle. Here it was examined further, and found to be a man anywhere from 5'8 to 5'10 in height, 25 to 45 years of age, and of indeterminate ethnicity. The cold temperature of the ground, being in an area more or less sheltered from the sun, made the exact length of time it was there difficult to determine, as it slowed decomposition, but it had likely been there from two weeks to a month. Many people came forward endeavoring to see whether the mysterious remains were those of, was that of missing relatives. An Elwood City man came to the Newcastle News offices, attempting to find out if it were the body of his nephew, 14-year-old Emerson Roberts, who had disappeared from his home at Hadley a week before. Another was a woman named Olive Harper, who inquired as to the possibility of its being her son Arthur, who had left to join the army two weeks before and promised to write his mother upon arrival at Fort Monroe in Virginia. The body was obviously neither of these, as it had been there for a longer period of time than either of those were missing, besides the fact that it was at least ten years older than Emerson Roberts. Moore came to inquire at the undertakers or wrote to him about several other possible identities, but all of these people had various conditions or injuries not present on the body. The next day, 
Detective Dunlap announced that the head and some of the clothing of the victim had been found by Detective C.W. Hicks. They were buried at the other end of the fallen tree. Once dug out, the head was photographed and later was again photographed sitting on a box and lit by the he headlights of a car. The severed head had red hair and a pug nose. Now reunited with its head, Coroner J.P. Caldwell filled out a death certificate for the headless corpse using the name Unknown Man, and the body was buried that same day in an unmarked grave at Graceland Cemetery in Newcastle. Though hundreds had viewed the body and head, the man could not be identified, and at this point, likely never will be. About a week and a half later, another body was discovered by four boys from West Pittsburgh who were squirrel hunting in the swamp. Charles Edmiston, John Rangel, Tony Onick, and Andrew Bester were near the fallen tree where the October 6th body was buried. Under some brush, they found a jumble of bones with a blue shirt and a gray undershirt laid over them. It has also been claimed that a pair of underwear was also present. Beside the bush was a pair of eight or nine tan work shoes and also a narrow-bladed, stiletto-style, six-inch-long knife. They ran back to town, once more to get Walter Bannon, and he went to the swamp to investigate the boy's find along with J.M. Dunlap and Coroner J.P. Caldwell. They arrived to find a group of spectators already on the scene. They confirmed the bones were indeed human and completely decomposed, and the coroner estimated the body had lain there since July or August. The investigators swiftly noticed the skull was missing, and that the body was in the same north-to-south configuration as the first. Like the previous body, the bones were removed to the offices of Offit and Company. Here the coroner and Dr. John Foster examined the bones in greater detail, theorizing they were those of a man. On October 19th, D.C. Green, as well as Lou and Philip Hawthorne, were in the swamp helping to search for the skull of the headless skeleton when they found a pile of clothing consisting of a gray jacket, dark brown pants, and a blue shirt about 200 yards away from where the skeleton was found. Nearby, hastily covered by twigs and shrubbery, was another skull, initially thought to be the skull of the dead man. When the skull was conveyed to Offit and Company, it was found that the skull was actually that of a woman and therefore did not belong to the recently discovered body. The lower jaw was missing, as were a few of the teeth in the upper jaw. It was entirely fleshless, and had possibly been in the swamp for a year or more. A faded page of a newspaper from Pittsburgh, its date not discernible, was found nearby, and it was thought that it was possible that the head might have been wrapped in the paper before being deposited in its, in its makeshift grave. The killer was thought by many to be a mad swamp hermit. Sheriff William Andrews and Deputy F.N. Johnson traveled to Youngstown, Ohio on October 20th to check on a possible identification of the first swamp victim, the one whose head had been found. There was a feeling there that it could have been a laborer named Red Fletcher, who had left town bound for Newcastle on September 28th and hadn't written his wife for several weeks. Although when they arrived, the wife told him that she had recently received word from her husband, who was in Buffalo, New York, Investigations were still ongoing as several of his co-workers had tentatively identified photographs of the head as his. With this, the initial discoveries in Murder Swamp, the so-called Triple Mystery of 1925, comes to a close. 
Nearly ten years later, at about five o'clock on the evening of October 15, 1934, two young men from West Pittsburgh named Mike Siemens and A.J. Germani were exercising their dogs in the marshy area when they discovered a body near an old slag dump. The body was badly decomposed and was that of a tall man, about six feet tall. Upon their discovery, the two boys notified Walter Bannon, and he, along with state police and coroner L. Orville Potter, went to the spot in the swamp where the body had been found later that evening. The body was covered by a thin layer of dirt. The investigative party left it where it lay for the night, as it was already quite dark, and they came back to retrieve it early on the morning of the 16th. It was on the fringes of the swamp, and was quite close to the banks of the Beaver River on a fairly high ledge, the ledge making it impossible, in the investigator's view, that it had merely washed down the river. From the degree of decomposition present, Coroner Potter thought it likely that the body had been deposited on the ledge some three months before, if not more. The body was lying face down. No clothing was found in the vicinity, just as had been the case in the discovery of the bodies in that same locality about seven years ago, according to the Newcastle News, despite the fact that in those instances, clothing had been found. In the coverage, the newspaper was also quite incredulous that the body had not been found before Siemens and Germani discovered it. Two paths leading into the brush at this point from a meadow, only about a hundred yards away, converge about five feet from where the body was discovered. Evidence of recent use of the path by a number of people was shown by the manner it had been tramped down, and undoubtedly quite a few people had walked past the spot in the past few months. The Newcastle News was cynical, though, about any possibility the body would ever be identified. Underneath the head, an empty bottle of whiskey and an iron stake of the sort used in highway construction were found furnishing some sort of clues, but Bannon noted that there was no missing persons cases from either West Pittsburgh or Newcastle that would correspond with the appearance of the body. E.B. Ben and A.C. Goodhart were two employees of the Pittsburgh and Lake Erie Railroad, otherwise known as the P&LE. Several of the railroad's cars at Newcastle Junction had been sitting motionless for five years, and on July 1st, 1936, the two men noticed the doors of a boxcar were open. They went over to close the doors, at which time they found a badly decomposed and headless body. As soon as they found it, they called on Lawrence County Sheriff Edward Pritchard, who in the company of several deputies, state policemen, Coroner Orville Potter, came to examine the car. The string of cars were inspected every month or so, the last visit of Ben and Goodhart being on June 10th. They stated the doors had all been shut on that occasion, so the killer, whoever it may have been, had visited the boxcar sometime within the past three weeks. Sheriff Pritchard, on the other hand, thought that the body had likely been deposited in the car months before, and that the killer had simply returned to the scene of the crime to find out if it had been discovered yet. When it hadn't, he left the doors of the car open so that it would be. The corpse's head could not be found. No clues were present as to the identity of the victim, and the decomposition was so advanced that even elementary details like the race of the victim could not be determined. It was apparent, however, the remains were definitely those of a man. Once more, no clothing was found with the body, which was nude. Under the remains were found three newspapers, 
two from Pittsburgh, and one from Cleveland. They were dated July 21st, 22nd, and 30th, respectively, and dated 1933, and were stained with blood. Next to the body lay a bag of cigarette tobacco, and a burlap sack was partially covering the body. It was at this time the tentative links between the Newcastle bodies and Cleveland's notorious Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, also known as the Torso Killer, were first forged. There's not enough space to deal with that case in any real depth, and it's not really the purpose here anyway, but suffice it to say that between 1934 and 1938, that killer had beheaded and sometimes dismembered at least 12 victims in that city. In late 1936 or early 1937, John Flynn, the assistant to Cleveland safety director Elliot Ness, came to Newcastle to investigate the beheadings there. He spoke with Ben and Goodhart while there. According to Peter Marillow, the detective most associated with the Mad Butcher investigation, Flynn returned to Cleveland a little dubious about the Newcastle torsos. He wasn't sure those murders had been committed by the same man responsible for the bodies here. I was sure, I was so sure, and am, still am sure, that I volunteered to spend my next furlough in Newcastle. And what I learned then, and since, has convinced me the murders were committed by the same man. In June 1937, Marillow came to Newcastle. Strangely, he seemed convinced there were 12 victims, although by this point, only five bodies had been discovered in the swamp. Even if all other murder victims in the area were counted, there were only eight. Two of these were apparently dismemberments, but were the murders of children. I suppose it could be plausible that, as these child murders were both in the 1920s, that the Cleveland killer could have begun his spree with children, thinking them easily easier to overpower, and then as his confidence grew, he progressed to the murder of adults. One had been the dismembered body of a young girl, her age thought to be about six, found in the Beaver River near Wampum in 1923. The other was that of 14-year-old Luigi Noscesi, found in a burnout shack near the High Bridge just outside Elwood City on New Year's Day, 1925. The geographic proximity between these two, in my opinion, make it unlikely that these were the early killings of another murderer. My gut tells me these were their own thing, as it were, but were probably very likely committed by the same person. Marillow also said that he spoke to a reporter named Edward Fritz, who said he had a suspect in both the Newcastle and Cleveland murders. The murderer, in his estimation, was responsible for the murder of a woman named Emma Jackson, whose throat was slit in 1921 outside Elwood City, about a half mile from where Luigi Noscesi's body was later found. Fritz stated that at the time he had information that a man who was thought to be one-half coward and one-half Mexican had entered this home and killed this woman but the investigation more or less collapsed at the time, and no arrests were made. I'm uncertain if this suspect might be referring to Joseph Thomas, who had shot a woman named Anna Kirker near Pittsburgh, and later escaped from, from a prison in Wilkinsburg. He was a fugitive for months, and it was thought he had killed Emma Jackson, as a black man answering his description was seen loitering around the property that day. However, he was later discovered living in Baltimore, and was, suspe was suspected in several break-ins and an attempt at murder there. Uh.
Hello. Do you like werewolves? Ghosts? How about weird legends, folklore? Or is witchcraft your thing? Then join us on Charles Christian's Weird Tales radio show every Thursday. We're on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, YouTube, and at weirdtalesradio.com. On October 13th, 1939, which was Friday the 13th, appropriately enough, three boys named Robert Durning, Carl Cause, and William Kessler were gathering walnuts about a mile north of West Pittsburgh on the fringes of the murder swamp. As they were traversing the marshy landscape, they happened upon a nude, headless body, badly decomposed and lying on its chest in a clump of weeds. The body had been partially burnt. The boys went into West Pittsburgh to get the ever-present Walter Bannon, who, along with sheriff's deputies, state police, and coroner C.P. Byers, went out to examine the area. The body, as I noted, was partially burnt, and it was found to be lying on a pile of newspapers drenched in gasoline. One was determined to be the Youngstown Vindicator for September 28th of that year. It seemed likely that the body had been killed where it lay. Recovered were an ankle bracelet, a pair of tan shoes, and a few scraps of a blue shirt. Between the decomposition and the burning, even the gender of the body was difficult to determine. Some of the earliest reports seemed to indicate that the body was first believed to be that of a teenage girl. However, when the body was transported to the Lyde Mortuary in Newcastle, Dr. David Perry determined that it was actually that of a slightly built young man. The victim's age was approximately 18 or 19, and he stood probably about 5 foot 6 inches in height and weighed about 120 pounds. He estimated that the body had been dead for approximately two weeks. The investigators had talked with a railwayman employed by the P&LE Railroad, Ben Grinder. He said that on the night of September 29th, at about 10 o'clock, he saw a flash at the edge of Murder Swamp, as of a bonfire suddenly flaring up and then dying out just as quickly. This would have corresponded rather neatly to the apparent time of death, and of course the implication is that Grinder had seen the body being burned. A few days after this, two other railway men, George McCart and Jim Carroll, said they saw a large number of crows circling around the same area where the fire had been seen. An effort had like had likewise been made to render the young man's body completely unrecognizable by not only beheading him, but also attempting to burn off his fingerprints by means of setting fire to pieces of newspaper placed in the corpse's hands. Dr. Perry felt that the body was not a victim of Cleveland's torso killer, as Detective Marillow believed, stating that in his estimation, the beheading appeared to be rough and rather amateurish, unlike the more refined and skilled dismemberment of that killer's victims. Peter Marillow, his partner Martin Zalewski, and David Cowles and Lloyd Tronk of the Criminal Identification Bureau were briefed at the state police headquarters. Tronk, at least, and possibly Cowles as well, went to the mortuary to examine the body. Marillow stated of the corpse that the man had small hands and feet, well-polished nails, and small bones. Tronk said he believed that the weapon used to behead the man was a thin saw or knife, possibly a jiggly saw, 
a thin, flexible sort of saw, which had reportedly been used as a garrote by the British military during World War II. Cowles, however, was more conservative and said only that there were certain similarities between the murders at West Pittsburgh and Cleveland. He seemed inclined, however, to disbelieve a, a link between the two series. Marillow said that Walter Bannon was able to tell us enough to convince us beyond a shadow of a doubt all the headless victims found in that locality had been murdered by Cleveland's butcher. Bannon himself ad- agreed, and so did the district attorney, county detectives, and Pennsylvania State Police. Speaking of the July 1936 discovery by Ben and Goodhart, Marillow commented that some of the parts of the Cleveland victims had been wrapped in Pittsburgh and Cleveland newspapers. Unless I'm completely misinterpreting this, this isn't exactly right. Most of the Cleveland victims were deposited in the water, and as far as I can determine, only the parts of Flo Palillo were wrapped in newspaper, and those were only Cleveland newspapers. I might be misinterpreting what I said, and to be perfectly honest, I, I probably am. It's been a little while since I looked into the Cleveland case in any real depth. But that body was buried on October 16th. The police received several calls from as far away as Georgia, notifying them of mer- missing persons and inquiring whether the latest murder swamp body was one of these. One inquiry was lodged concerning a 37-year-old man named Eugene Lataro from East Milford, who had not been seen since September 22nd. Obviously, Lataro was far too old to be the remains found. I discovered a copyright had actually been filed for a song called Pennsylvania Moon, which was written in 1940 by a Eugene Lataro of New Milford. So, clearly, he had turned up eventually. On October 19th, George McCart, the railway man who saw the flock of crows, was inspecting some train cars at Newcastle Junction, only a few hundred feet from where the Friday the 13th body was found, when a foul smell attracted him to a gondola car belonging to the Pittsburgh McKeesport and Yugiagani Railroad, or P. Mick and Y. Lowering himself into the open-topped railroad car, he found the smell grew stronger. He cleared away a pile of leaves and other detritus in the corner of the car and discovered a badly decomposed human head. As it turned out, the head of the last body discovered. Investigators came out to retrieve the head, which had long, sandy-collared hair and seemed to be fairly clean-shaven. Several of the teeth had been knocked out, presumably when the head was tossed into the train car. Some burrs were present in the hair, and as there was a wooded area between where the body was killed and the train car, it was thought these had been picked up while the head was being carried away from the apparent scene of the crime. Shortly after this, the four Cleveland investigators, as well as County Detective Paul Welsh and Walter Bannon, went to the train car where the head was discovered. While here, Detective Marillow found two of the teeth that had been knocked out of the mouth, as well as some hair. These teeth still exist at the Cleveland Police Historical Museum, still in an evidence envelope. It was felt by some that the condition of the teeth seemed to indicate that the victim was older than previously thought. Though a cast of the head was made, the individual was again never identified. The last of the murder swamp bodies was found on November 2, 1940, when a rabbit hunter found a skull in the swamp 
near the spot where the slightly built headless man had been found. Nearby, he discovered a skeleton lying on its back. There were signs of a fire beneath the skeleton, and it seemed that the body had been set on fire similarly to the last one discovered. The coroner felt that the body had been likely laying in the swamp since the previous winter, or a few months after the previous body had been killed. The most grisly finds had come a few months before, about 30 miles to the south near Pittsburgh. The city had already been the site of the gruesome beheading murder of a man later identified as Charles McGregor, whose body, nude except for socks, was found in, the ch in a changing shed at a municipal swimming pool on October 1st, 1923, and his head was later found buried nearby. At 9.15 a.m. on the morning of May 3rd, 1940, a foreman on the PL&E Railroad, Harry F. Gross, and a scrap collector named Leroy Rust were checking over a string of boxcars sitting at the railroads in Stowe Township. Hobos often took up residence in unattended railway cars, and as these cars were scheduled for demolition, they needed to be double-checked for habitation before they were destroyed. They opened the door of one of the boxcars, number 80179, and were immediately struck by a disgusting odor. As Gross's eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, there, in the corner of the boxcar, he saw a nude human torso, with its head and limbs removed. A burlap sack lay next to the corpse, and in this, the men were horrified to discover the arms and the legs. The dazed men called the police, and at 9.40 a.m., a contingent of police arrived along with two deputy coroners, Donald Connors and Fred Wahagan. By 11.15, the car had been examined by the detectives, and Connors and Wahagan removed the torso and limbs. As the police made their way out of the boxcar, two men ran up to him. One was Harry F. Gross, and the other was an, em was an employee named John Keuchel, reported in the Warren Times Mirror as John Salak. The railroad men blurted out to the police that while continuing the habitation check, they had found a second body in car 51224. It was another dismembered torso. As Officer Samuel Riddle said, The legs and one arm were placed on the floor first, and then the torso was, neat, was placed neatly on top of them, with the shoulders pointed toward the door. Evidence was found in this case, however. A piece of upholstery cloth, roughly circular in shape. A strip of checkered cloth 5 inches wide and 30 inches long, and no less than 40 paper bags, all stamped with the name of the Everett Fuel Company. Now, the Everett Gas Company was centered around Newark, Ohio, and I wonder if Everett was a misspelling of the name Everett. This time, Coroner P.J. Henney and an assistant removed the body and took this one to the mortuary as well. Allegheny County District Attorney Andrew T. Park, as well as a number of county detectives, arrived on the scene. At this point, Harry Gross and John Keuchel came up to the investigators again. The unfortunate railway employees were having the worst day at work imaginable because they had found a third body. They led investigators to car number 33650 and another gruesome scene. This car was practically drenched in blood and lying in the car was another corpse, this time mostly intact except for the fact that it had been beheaded. This one had paper laid over it. 
The investigators felt enough blood was present to make it likely that unlike the others, this individual had very likely met his end here in the boxcar. Here they found a length of shoestring, several buttons, two of which appeared to be from a woman's blouse, and another length of clothesline, about five inches long. There was, there was evidence that something had been burnt in the car, as charred papers and ashes littered the blackened floor. On one of the charred papers, a newspaper name and date could be discerned. It was the Youngstown Vindicator for December 11th, 1939. Oddest of all, when the bo badly decomposed body was moved, it was noticed that in the flesh of its chest was etched, in five-inch tall letters, the word Nazi. The Z in the word, however, was inverted and resembled an S. The third body was taken to the morgue, and with that, the day's discoveries were thankfully done. A second contingent of investigators arrived on scene to examine the boxcars. Youngstown, Ohio Police Chief John Turnbull was there, as the cars had been shipped to the Stowe Township yards from Youngstown, as was Detective William Reed from that city. A number of police from Lawrence County, P&LE Railroad Detectives, as well as several figures in the Torso Killer investigation in Cleveland, this time Elliot Ness's deputy Robert Chamberlain, as well as Detectives Marillo and Zalewski, David Cowles, and Lloyd Trunk. Pathologist Theodore Helmbold did the autopsies, which were witnessed by the investigative group. All three were badly decomposed, and there was evidence that the first of the three bodies had been completely frozen at some point. Owing to the degree of decomposition present, not much could really be told about the individuals whose bodies had been found. All were approximately the same size, probably about 5 foot 7 inches or 5 foot 8 inches in height, and all were apparently slightly overweight. All three had been dead approximately the same amount of time, three weeks to a month, and death in all instances was apparently due to massive blood loss. As to the Nazi inscription on the headless man, Helmbold couldn't de determine for certain whether it had been done with a knife or, or with some sort of acid. Another policeman, Officer Leo Dumont, tried to take fingerprints from the bodies, or what fingerprints could still be discerned. Overall, Helmbold noted, It seems that a butcher knife was used, and by someone who knew how to handle it. All of the cuts were neatly made, and there were no nicks in the bone or flesh surrounding the cuts. The killer knew his anatomy. Other pieces of evidence are found in newspaper reporting about the boxcar bodies. Although, they're absent from Hell's Wasteland, the book I primarily used for this episode. It was often reported that the first two bodies had been identified as being of women. It was also mentioned that the killer attempted to burn the fingerprints off of one of his victims via paper wedged in the hands, as in one of the later Murder Swamp victims. As they're absent from that book, though, these may be apocryphal or misinterpretations of genuine facts, akin to how one of the Murder Swamp victims was consistently described as a woman, but was later found to actually be that of a man. Chief Turnbull of Youngstown recalled that in late, in late December of 1939, a bundle of bloody clothes had been, had been found in one of the boxcars that were now in Stowe Township. The clothing consisted of two shirts, suits, a pair of shoes, several pairs of underwear, and a denim jacket, and all had been wrapped in an overcoat and bound with a belt. 
Also, on February 28th, there had been a suspicious fire in one of the boxcars, which damaged several of the cars. Was this fire the burning of whatever had been burnt in the third boxcar? The travels of a string of boxcars were traced. They had been at the Cedar Street Yards in Youngstown until April 19th. Then they were moved to another rail yard in Struthers, a suburb of Youngstown. And then two days later, they had been mo moved to McKee's Rocks. And then on May 2nd, they had been moved to Stowe Township. Interestingly, the head and limbs discovered at Weirton Junction, described in the intro, had originated from the Scully Yards, very near to McKee's Rocks. And it was, dis it was likely here that the parts had been de deposited in the cinder car. The approximate timing of the deaths meant that they had likely been placed in the cars while they sat in Youngstown. The fingerprints taken by Officer Dumont had come back, and though the first two could not be identified, the third, the so-called Nazi body, was. It was James David Nicholson, a.k.a. Leslie Nicholson, a.k.a. James Henderson, a lifelong petty criminal, originally from Chicago, who had a lengthy rap sheet of arrests for, made for burglary, forgery, and other offenses. Interestingly, it was indicated by his later arrests that he had become a vagrant. This tied in with the theories that the bodies were the work of the notorious Torso Killer, who was theorized to have preyed on the homeless in the Kingsbury-run hobo encampments. It was noted that a hobo encampment called Hoover City existed near the yards the boxcars had been held at in Struthers, and one also existed near Newcastle Junction, and therefore Murder Swamp. The boxcar torsos were sent to Cleveland, where they were to be examined by Dr. Norman Hoover at Western Reserve University Medical School, who late in the Kingsbury Run investigation had more or less taken over examination duties from Coroner Samuel Gerber, who had flubbed up by, by identifying a dissected and preserved medical school cadaver as a torso killer victim. By late 1940, Cleveland officials had lost interest in the Stowe Township bodies, presumably due to Hoover's statements that the method of dismemberment in those cases was sufficiently different from the Mad Butcher's killings. Despite this, Peter Marlowe still made periodic trips to the area to check up on various leads, most notably in June 1941 to check on two severed legs found floating in the Ohio River, one near the Sewickley Bridge and another a few days later off Neville Island near Coraopolis. However, Marlowe's memoirs do not mention either of these trips, and so it's unknown what he thought about what he thought about them. Two more decapitation murders took place in the Pittsburgh area, that of Wallace L. Wallace L. Brown on September 24, 1941, found in a trash dump at Beck's Run Road in Carson Street, and that of Ernest Alonzo, whose decapitated body was found floating in the Monongahela River off the 10th Street Bridge on June 21, 1942. It's not certain whether Marilow investigated either of those instances. At any rate, they're not mentioned by him either. But with these last two discoveries, the rumors of the Torso Killer's exploits in western Pennsylvania came to a close. Most of Murder Swamp is no longer extant, with the area being developed in the years since the discovery of the bodies there. Small portions of marshy area still exist, but it's nothing like it once was.
And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. And photographs um, relevant to this episode can be found on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.